Well, today is May 11th, 2019. It's been a little while since I recorded the last entry into my podcast here, All the Diets Under the Sun by Guillermo Perez. I am Guillermo Perez. It's a journey from childhood to adulthood in the battle with weight. So now I'm going to read to you Chapter 7, The Fight Begins. One of the most important parts of my life that I failed to mention is family gatherings. We always had Sunday lunch. My grandmother cooked a great big Cuban meal and everyone ate their fill. It was a celebration that we had another good week. The meals were quite heavy, meaty, and loaded with carbohydrate-rich foods, such as arroz con pollo and bite empanizado, mostly accompanied by rice and beans. Delicious, but now I understand the volume of intake is seriously important. Naturally, my dad couldn't have something to eat without following it up with ice cream. We all loved ice cream, and this would be a staple at our Sunday lunch for years. My wife began to make comments about my eating habits and my weight gain. But when I looked in the mirror, I didn't see that fat person I had become. Somehow, my perception of myself was skewed. How could the mirror lie to me? It could not be the mirror. It was all in my mind. But because I did not realize this, I ignored my wife's comments, even though she was right. I remember doing work in our rather small yard in North Plainfield and feeling totally exhausted. I hated it more than anything else at that time. Between the weight and lack of exercise, I was literally becoming a mass of walking fat. The trip to Mexico would change my life. Mexico City had become a biannual trip. I was quite comfortable getting around the city. I knew where I had to go and how to get there, and that was before smartphones and GPS. On this particular trip, I booked a hotel that was a short walking distance from my first appointment. The hotel was the Sevilla Palace, and the client was Banca Creme, which no longer exists. I ate a croissant and coffee in their restaurant for breakfast. I walked outside, and the sidewalks were cracked as they had just suffered an earthquake that had caused a lot of damage the week before. I was feeling good and walked a few blocks to their building. When I got to the building, the lobby was filled with people. One of the three elevators was not working. I waited a few minutes, but I grew impatient, so I decided to use the stairs to get to the third floor. I had several things working against me. First, I am asthmatic and out of shape, so any exertion may bring on an attack. Also, Mexico City is over 7,000 feet above sea level. I still hadn't acknowledged I was overweight, so I took the stairs. I was completely winded by the time I arrived at the third floor. I felt like I was having a heart attack and was sweating profusely. I had had to sit down just to compose myself before I announced myself at the reception desk. This was when I realized something was wrong with me. That something, that fact that I finally came to admit, was that I was obese. Yes, obese. On my return home, I told my wife what had happened. I told her I needed to lose the weight before it killed me. I asked for suggestions, and she recommended I try Jenny Craig. 
I made, I made a plan to diet and exercise. I knew I had to start slow and easy. The first conscious decision I made was to stop taking the subway and walk to the office. This is something I still have to do today. This would help me build up my physical strength. The second was I began the Jenny Craig diet system. It really was simple. I showed up and met with a counselor. They weighed me and told me that I could only eat and drink what they gave me. That meant I had to write them a hefty check every week for their food. This I did gladly. The weight fell off in the first few weeks and I was down 10 pounds in three weeks. This was a very positive outcome. I was happy with the program and I stayed on it for quite some time. What was the Jenny Craig system about? Well, first they meet with you and assign a personal counselor. This person weighs you once a week and keeps tabs on your progress. Most of all, they make sure you keep buying their food. Now don't get me wrong, if losing weight is your goal, then it will get the job done. It definitely worked. The discipline and follow-up they offer is regimented to the point that you will lose weight if you are obedient. What was the Jenny Craig food like? There were many frozen meals. Each meal gave you the necessary nutrition. Typically, it was meat and vegetables, pasta and rice. They were complete meals that were better for your health than a frozen Stouffer's meal would be. Eventually, I got sick of the limited menu, even though they did constantly expand their catalog of food. It was my first successful attack against my weight problem. In Mexico City, I weighed about 196 pounds. By the time I stopped going to Jenny Craig to buy my food and control my diet, I was down to 168 pounds. I was able to start exercising again, and I was feeling pretty good. I began riding my bicycle on the weekend instead of taking the bus from the corner. I cycled to work a few miles away. That's to the bus stop, really. <laughs> I still had my Schwinn 10-speed bicycle. I was so proud of that bicycle when I bought it because I had earned the money by working hard washing dishes at the restaurant. It was a deep and beautiful metallic red. I always kept it clean and well polished. I filled the tires with air the night before I took it to the train station for the first time. That's right, it was a train station, not a bus station at that time. I had an old-fashioned cable with a combination lock. I thought my bicycle was old enough that no one would care about it. I was wrong. I got off the train that first day on my return from New York City to the Fanwood Station on the Raritan Valley Line. I walked with the crowds of people away from the tracks to the bike racks and parking lot. Then I looked at where I thought I had parked my bicycle, and it wasn't there. I looked at the other racks and finally realized it had been stolen. I was upset. I called my wife from a payphone. Remember, this is a while back. And I told her I would be walking home, so I would be later than expected. My wife was patient and sympathetic. She knew how much I liked that bicycle, as it represented one of my most important accomplishments in my mind. Though I was upset, we discussed my exercise goals, and she suggested I buy a new bicycle for commuting. I wanted to buy another American-made bicycle because I was very patriotic. I find about, found a bicycle shop nearby that offered a full line of Trek bicycles. 
I read through all their order options methodically. I got a 21-speed hybrid that came loaded with generator lights and fenders. It was a beautiful metallic blue bicycle. I told my brothers about it, and they thought it was so cool. I brought the catalog with me to Sunday lunch to show them. They were so excited for me and encouraged me not to stop riding. My wife had the wisdom to say, since I was investing in such a nice bicycle, that I should insure it under our homeowner's policy. I agreed, but I also bought a heavy-duty U-lock and chain lock. I had double protection. There was no way anyone was going to steal this bicycle. As I got into shape, I was actually riding double the distance I used to. I began to ride to Westfield train station, which was much further, six miles away from my home. It was the spring when I started that commute. The months passed. I was sure nothing would happen, as the bike rack was right behind the firehouse that was manned 24 hours a day. Then months later, I got off the train and walked to the bike rack. Guess what? I couldn't believe my eyes. My bicycle was gone. The craziest part is that they were not able to get my locks off and they had to cut the actual bike rack to steal my bike. I walked a few blocks to the police department to report the theft. The police officer there at the Westfield station wrote out a report so I could collect my insurance. I asked him the odds of them recovering my bicycle. His response told it all, zero to none. That made two stolen bicycles, and I was not going to make it three. Instead of buying another bicycle for commuting, I bought another 21-speed Trek road bicycle to ride on weekends and used my wife's old Raleigh 10-speed during the week. Sure, I wasn't happy at first. I had loved that luxurious commuter bicycle, but I started going for longer and more serious rides on weekends. I was able to burn off a lot of fat and keep it off for six years. This was only possible because I would ride at least 30 miles every weekend. And as the years went on, I hit between 45 and 60 miles every weekend. During the week, I was riding 12 miles a day. This meant I was pulling in over 100 miles a week. I was in good shape. But I still re really wasn't down to what all the textbooks said I should weigh. I was between 165 to 169 pounds. I started participating in fundraising cycle rides for schools that helped developmentally disabled children. It was a test of my perseverance because the routes they devised were full of seriously challenging hills. It would take me months of training to prepare for those 45 mile rides. Eventually, I started eating a lot more because my body craved more. I thought my body needed it, but I was wrong. I was still riding my bicycle, but not as frequently. Then we moved to the town of Mountainside, which was closer to the train and required me to cross a highway to get to the station. It was not fun to battle the traffic on those routes either. A few years went by and I was still eating like I was riding 120 miles a week. I was actually only riding 50 miles a week and my weight drifted into the 180s. Yes, I was one of those fat guys on a bicycle. Luckily at that stage, I wasn't wearing ridiculous bicycle clothing yet, so I didn't look like a complete fool. I knew I was fat, and I had to do something about it. Jenny Craig was out of the question, because it was just way too expensive for me now. 
Before I move on, I realize maybe there are some stories I forget to tell that led me to my original weight gain. There were also changes to my responsibilities. As I was promoted after a few years to the head of the trading desk for foreign currencies and precious metals, it wasn't what I was shooting for. It just happened because they were happy with my work and my attitude. One day, a customer called me to place an order in the market. We were shorthanded, and it was very busy. I forgot, I forgot to put the order in. In this case, if the customer wanted to buy silver at $11 an ounce, and it was trading at $10, I had nothing to worry about. But if the price rose to $11, I had to buy and sell it back to the customer. That is how I would make a living with the service charges. However, if the customer wanted to buy it at $11, and the market went to 12 and I forgot to buy it before the price went up, I still had to sell the silver to the customer at the lower price, buy it at the higher price, and lose money on the transaction. And that is exactly what happened. It was on an order to buy 50,000 ounces, which meant I had lost $50,000 on that mistake. I totally freaked out. I'd never made such a huge error. I could have said nothing, and the rest of the traders wouldn't know until the profit and loss statement was released at the end of the month. This was, I think, circa 1985, so systems were not very robust, and all the work was still done by hand. I thought about it, and thought about it some more, and believed that the option was wrong. I mustered up the courage and went to my boss's office. He was sitting at his desk reading a Portuguese newspaper. He had the paper in one hand and a lit cigar in the other. Remember those days when you could smoke in the office? I knocked on his door, and he waved me in. I closed the door behind me. He looked up at me and said, in Portuguese, what's up? Then I told him the story and apologized. I was expecting to be fired on the spot. He looked at me and took a deep breath, pulled back some smoke from his car, blew out a huge cloud of smoke, and then leaned forward to me. And looking at me, he said, please don't make that mistake again. Go back to work. Mistakes happen and you need to learn from them. I danced my way out of the office, and the other traders were impressed. From that day forward, I felt like a real man. I was then given the responsibility of managing the desk, and when the hen trader left the company a few weeks later, this was an unexpected added burden. The market pace and increased regulations caused my stress levels to rise. I remember I had a customer that was trading all sorts of commodities. He bought orange juice, pork bellies, and lumber. He had his hopping. He was also paying our bills. Eventually, though, he unwound his own position in the market when he realized he was a much better real estate investor than commodities trader. We then landed another trading account from Mexico. The guy was crazy. He thought he could move the market. He opened an account with $2 million. He liked to trade on all the precious metals. One time when he had an order to sell platinum on a stop, the market moved abruptly and his order was at a much lower price. When the market got disorderly, the exchange would put the F letter in front of the published quote to signal it was a fast market. However, there was another four-letter word that most readers used when that letter to truly signify what was going on. In this case, that was definitely what happened to my customer. He got effed. 
he got a $50 per ounce order filled at lower than his stop order. That means that he lost $100,000 in less than 15 minutes. He tried to recoup these losses, but lost more every day. I called him and suggested we become partners in a business before he burnt through all his cash. Unfortunately, he preferred to lose it all, and he went bust in less than six months. My customers' losses did affect me because it meant they wouldn't be around to do more business. This stress drove me to eat and drink more than usual. I had an extra beer here or there, two hamburgers for lunch instead of one, a chocolate shake every once in a while to relieve the stress. These bad habits quickly added on the pounds. The most stressful time for me was dealing with regulatory issues. We were also in the currency exchange business. Back in the 1980s, anti-money laundering laws were created to stop drug trafficking. Instead, what they did was make it so the U.S. government, not the private sector, earned any income from the movement of these funds. They would, in essence, pass the buck on police work so they could take a commission via an occasional large money laundering bust. However, the laws were written in such a way that made anyone involved with a transaction liable as a criminal enabler. Our company moved a few hundred million dollars of currencies daily. Most of this was supplying banks and foreign exchange companies with different currencies. We would, of course, we would, of course, do our due diligence and keep records of who all these people were and report any suspicious transactions to the government. Instead of being rewarded for our good corporate citizenship, they used our reporting to extort legitimate money from the business for their own pockets. I recall one time a company claiming to be operating in the Bahamas said they had a lot of currency exchange business to do. I invited them to come to the office and discuss it further. Four people came. One kept asking crazy questions, trying to skirt the reporting laws. Of course, I was quite adamant that we would require all proper documentation. They insisted that the meeting had gone well and that we would be speaking very soon. The next day, I called to see when we would, could expect to receive their account documentation so we could get the business going. The number was disconnected. The folks were not bankers, but FBI or Treasury agents. It was a sting. This to me should be illegal. To try to bait someone to do something that they may not do if they hadn't been baited is wrong in my book. Now I realize that something was going on and we were being tested. I advised my superiors, but there really wasn't anything to be done as we were complying with all the regulations. Then it happened. In 1991, the money laundering laws were used as a criminal tool by the government. The funds of our company had been frozen by the district attorney under the guise of a $100,000 wire transfer that allegedly passed through our company heading to Australia. We moved about $500 million a day. So that represents 0.02% of one day's work and an infinitely smaller amount on an annual basis. You would think that they would seek our help to arrest the criminals. That, however, was not the government's intent. They used the seizure law to effectively shut down our business for several weeks. They sent documents with no proof of any malfeasance on the part of the company or any of its employees. Their only alleged proof was one wire transfer that had gone to an alleged nefarious criminal. They almost put our company out of business. There were only two options, 
go to court, which would take months, even though we had already hired high-level lawyers from Washington, D.C., or negotiate a settlement with the district attorney. Ever wonder how some government entities gain power? This is one of the ways. They extorted $8 million from the company. The company admitted no wrongdoing because there was none, and the district attorney's office got rich. This money does not go to the state, but to the government entity that brought the charges. That meant the district attorney was suddenly a much more powerful man with money to back him. This payoff crippled the company and contributed to its bankruptcy years later. In one of the documents, they alleged that a drug dealer had my name and the company's toll-free number written down on a piece of paper. Of course, this proves absolutely nothing. All this meant is that the guy probably asked someone where he could exchange money and was given my name. After seeing my government's abuse of power, it made me think about leaving the business. It was during this incredibly stressful time that I began to eat like a wild animal. I only seemed to find some joy in food. It was like getting high on food. I can still recall one evening when I essentially ate almost an entire large pizza pie by myself. My wife looked at me in disgust, and I just didn't care. My eating habits had gotten progressively worse. Though in my mind, I would wake up with good intentions to curb my appetite and lose weight, I just could not do it. Even though all my early dieting successes, even through it all, I had the same problem and did not learn about the source until recently. Right before the Mexico event and after the monetary extortion by the district attorneys, I decided I wanted to get out of this side of the business. My team, Roy, my best friend, Alan, and I arranged a meeting with a treasurer from a growing regional bank at the time called Wachovia. He came up to New York to meet with us. We went to my favorite restaurant in New York City at the time that my father had introduced me to. It was a Spanish restaurant called Torre Molinos. I took all our guests there and they treated us like royalty. The food was always exceptional. My two favorite items on the menu were Dover sole, which they prepared table side, and I would always end the evening with a piece of Napoleon cake or strawberries with Sauvignon sauce. This is one restaurant with so many memories that I will never forget, even though it closed its doors close to 20 years ago. So my team, two guys from the up-and-coming bank, and I met there. We were drinking and having a good time. What they did not know was that Roy was an alcoholic. And when he was drinking orange juice, he had a great way about himself that always gave him a stately presence. He was a couple of years older than Alan, and I was younger than both. Roy was with us to make sure we didn't get too out of control. And we had a very good time. The treasurer said he liked us and would like to bring our whole team to North Carolina. Sadly, that all went south when his only son died a week later in a tragic beach accident. The son saw his grandson struggling in the ocean, swam out to save him. He was successful, but the strong mother's toe took him instead. I was obviously much more disturbed about his loss than our loss of opportunity. We were still looking to make a move, and a year later, Alan and I landed jobs at an interbank brokerage shop. They wanted me to come and work the Mexican peso desk, but I wouldn't go without Alan. 
we negotiated that we could take parts of our business with us and still do it at their firm. Their parent company financials were strong, and so we thought it would not be an issue. I haven't named the company because I don't have many kind things to say. Upon starting there, I learned right away that I was brought in to spy on the broker that was already doing the Mexican peso business. The man was on the defensive. This was a bad way to start a new position. We never became friends, and he made it unbearable for me. At one point, I made a public spectacle of myself when I lost my cool and asked him if he wanted to have it out between us. In other words, I asked him for a fist fight. Of course, cooler heads prevailed, and it never happened. That wasn't the end of my problems there. Though I met many good people at that company, it was a dog-eat-dog -dog atmosphere. The same people who were working with me would try to steal my customers. Alan and I used to cover the phones for one woman every time she needed to use the restroom. She knew that if anyone else on the desk answered the phone, they might steal her customer. We were on very friendly terms, and I remember her teaching me about vegetables and their health benefits. Her parent owned a fruit and vegetable market in Brooklyn, which helped her learn all about healthy eating as a kid. I wish I had paid better attention to her then. Thinking back, I believe she may have been the first person I knew who cared about the food she ate. Her attitude was definitely different, and my mind was just beginning to open up to the possibility that the qualities of the foods you ingest are just as important as their calorie content. But it would be a long time until I started to take it seriously. In the past, I successfully lost weight with the Jenny Craig plan. But keeping it off was another thing altogether. Exercising had been an important part of my weight management program. I had become an avid cyclist, but it wasn't enough. Drinking beer, eating pizza and pasta would still add up. And instead of being at my comfortable weight of 168 pounds, I kept going up to the high 170s. I knew I needed help. I turned to Weight Watchers. At the time I started, it was mostly about portion control and learning the calorie count of the foods I ate. The weekly weigh-in was definitely supportive because even when I was not competing against someone, seeing that I was failing at my goal burned me up. This is one part of the program I believe still exists today. You can always turn down the weigh-in, but that was a form of cowardice to me. I always weighed in every week. I was one of, at most, two men at the weekly meeting. I know that there are a lot of fat guys, so I was surprised. I think part of the reason is because Weight Watchers markets heavily to women. It drove me crazy to spend money every week for someone to tell me what I already knew. After a few months of getting myself disciplined to follow the portion control regimen, I lost weight. I knew I was in a good place now and in a rhythm. Once I was on a roll, I knew I could keep it going for some time. I stopped going to Weight Watchers and kept the weight off for most of the following year. When the holidays came, I started letting myself go again. Slowly, the weight crept back on. Before I knew it, I had to go back onto Weight Watchers in less than 18 months. How come I exercised all the time, but I still gained weight? I couldn't figure it out. I went back to Weight Watchers. This time... I continued going for a full year. They had changed the program to a point system. You had to learn about the foods and calculate their value in points. They also provided a small book that listed foods and their points. 
Additionally, you could buy a book with a more extensive list of foods, including many popular choices from restaurants. Then you would calculate how many points per day you were allowed to eat by looking up your height and weight. Once you knew your maximum points to be consumed daily, it was relatively easy. The hardest part is just being honest with oneself. I had to make sure I put in everything I ate. One of the most important points about Weight Watchers is going to the meetings and listening to these instructors' upbeat directions, then hearing people trying to lose weight talk about their struggles somehow gave me the strength to stick with the program. I went to the Weight Watchers meeting in Westfield, New Jersey. I recall a female instructor. There were no male instructors. Anyway, she was always a great speaker. She herself had been extremely obese at one time. She had lost all the weight, and when she spoke with the people who were in the program, she was very compassionate. She was not what I would call an extremely sexy woman, but her persona made her very attractive. In a funny way, I fell in love with her from afar. I never said anything to her, except to thank her for her support. One of the things about her that was so cute was what I call her New York Jewish accent, and she was half comedian as well. Most important thing she impressed upon us all the time was, if it went in your mouth, you have to write it down. This was a mantra that I would use over and over again as the years went by. For my second time at Weight Watchers, I was determined to lose weight, and so I would go to the meetings every week. I was encouraged in every way in. I rode my bicycle everywhere including to the meetings. Between the exercise and the program, I did drop my weight once again. In the background was my work and family. I left that one terrible job I had and started working at a bank. There was stress, but not the same kind. Then we also sold our first house and moved into our second home to be closer to New York City. We had two boys and they were happy and healthy. My wife and I were also very happy together. And she was delighted when I began to lose weight again. All parts of my life were in synchrony. And this kind of psychological peace is what truly gave me the willpower to overcome my weight issues once again. I realized that I drew my strength from my success at work, my wife, and family. It's not just about being happy. It's also about those around me. If I am not happy, it becomes impossible to keep up the discipline needed to stay at the proper weight. So I lasted for quite a few years at a healthy weight while my life was stable. Of course, life is full of curveballs, and I was just about to get hit by one. Well, that was a long chapter, wasn't it? Yeah, well, so now you heard I had some good successes, feeling better, and everything seems great, and I'm keeping healthy. But guess what? It's not going to last. So until next week, I hope you enjoyed the reading. And hope you keep listening. Take care. Oh, and happy Mother's Day.